0: Take your Bibles and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8. When uh, Carl asked me if I could preach, I started, uh, again, looking around for a text and, that I could study, and I thought, well, that's a good one, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, or three miracles of healing. And I started getting into it and realized, there's no way I'm going to get to the three miracles of healing. And so we're actually down to one, okay? So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So let me read that text. And uh, we'll get into the text. Matthew chapter eight. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount uh, that I know uh, we just studied. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. A leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I'm sure a number of us were surprised last week when Pastor Shannon said, told us about that fellow that came up in the seminar and said, uh, nice seminar, who's Jesus? Uh, but maybe not. If we're familiar with the way our culture is going, who is Jesus? That, of course, is the basic question, isn't it? Asked countless of times over the centuries, prompting countless of answers, speculations, guesses. I just looked at my shelf that has a Christology, and uh, these, are the, these are the books, not the titles, but the premise of the book. Jesus was a Jewish sage. He was a great teacher. He was a wonder worker. He was a prophet. He was a psychologist. He's a motivational speaker. He was the greatest salesman ever. Those are all the answers to the question: who is Jesus? Of course, there's only one correct source of the information, and that's the Word of God. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? This is the main idea, frankly, of Matthew's gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? But you already know that, right? You already know. I don't need to bring that question up with us, do we? I mean, do, I, do we really need to ask the question, who is Jesus at Grace Community Church? We could all give that answer, couldn't we? Well, maybe it'd be a good idea to have at least a refresher, so bear with me, all right? One way that question is answered by the gospel writers, by Jesus himself during his earthly ministry, is look at the miracles. Look at the miracles. And specifically, the healings that told the people, both the ones to whom Jesus came and the ones to whom Matthew wrote, who Jesus was. Look at the miracles. Look at the healings. For some people, for Christians today, the miracles are something of an embarrassment, however. Either because we in the 21st century, people like us, we're living in an age where all that's bygone. Okay, miracles? Are you kidding me? It's okay for books like this, but not for us. On the other hand, surprisingly, we have the religion, I put it, religion of the charismatics, that they just have miracles every day, miracles all the time. I'll give you a miracle today. Uh, I was watching one of those uh, programs on a Sunday morning one time, and the guy said, uh, I'm here to give you a miracle, and suddenly the television quit working. And I said, <laughs> thank you, Lord. <laughs> the, no, no. <laughs> The problem is, is that, um, you know, those who say, well, you know, miracles are from a bygone era, well, look, dude, that's the definition of a miracle, okay? It doesn't happen every day. It wouldn't be a very much of a sign. If we had miracles all the time, what good would that do? If miracles were as common as, as any kind of activity or any kind of event, you, they wouldn't really tell us anything. That's why they proved something about Jesus, because they were miracles, On the other hand, if miracles were as ubiquitous as the Charismatics want them to be, they wouldn't be much of a sign, would they? I mean, they would be just about, everybody would be having a miracle. Well, that's the point. They're miracles, and they're miracles for a reason, because they tell us something unique about the one doing the miracles. That's what's going on. In Matthew's gospel, he has his miracles a little bit different than the other gospel writers, Uh, Matthew's miracles are grouped together topically. It's not that they're not chronological, but uh, Matthew's not so concerned about that. He puts them into these groupings in this way so that he can make a point. That's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 8. There are three miracles and then a summary of the various miracles that he did at the end of this passage that are indications that um, Matthew's trying to make a point larger than just one part, although we're not going to obviously have time for that. Unless you want to stay through you know, uh, <laughs> no, no, I don't think. In any case, uh, miracles, it doesn't mean that these miracles are, are, Matthew doesn't have a reason for them. He does have. And a lot of times we think the miracles, of course, they're talking about, the miracles are t- telling us about Jesus' compassion. We'll see a little bit of that in uh, this text this morning. And of course, the miracles were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We see that at the end of this text, down in verse 17, But both of those reasons were part of a more basic purpose, and this is it. Uh, I always like to say, if you don't get anything else about this first part, get this part, and that is the miracles were proof that he is the Messiah. Matthew groups them together. Jesus did them in the first place to prove he is the Messiah. They were supposed to be looking for the Messiah, and they were supposed to be looking for the Messiah kind of things being done, and miracles were exactly what they should have been expecting, and some of them were expecting. That's it. They were authentication and verification of the Messiah, and that's again what these three groups of mirac- these three miracles are grouped together here for. Now, again, just this is an overview for all three, but very quickly, the three are grouped together around this theme. They're all unlikely candidates for Jesus to do a miracle for them or to have anything to do with them. The first is a leper that we've already read about. The second one that comes up in the next few verses is about a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And by the way, when I was here last time, we talked about the Syrophoenician woman. This this centurion is the only other one besides the Syrophoenician woman that got got Jesus, you know, surprised. He was just amazed at her faith. He's a, he was amazed at the centurion's faith too. And then the last one in the group is, is Peter's mother-in-law, and he heals her as well. And I know that this is not good form to point out the fact that she was a woman, but that's the point. In that culture, she was like the other two. There were people who were on the margins of society. They were were not the the most prominent people, a leper, a Roman, Gentile, and a woman. So that's why Matthew brings these three together. And he brings them together in order to make a point about Jesus' miracle power, and that was, it was therefore, again, remember we talked about last time, those who get it and those who don't. For those who get it, or should have gotten it, they didn't get it. But here's some people that get it. Again, unlikely people who actually would have understood who Jesus was. already had the answer to who is Jesus. So this morning, I'm just going to deal, as I said, with the leper here. So again, verses 1 through 4, the first miracle. But they, before I get to the leper, I have to sort of deal with something else, and it's going to take a few minutes to do this. I'm looking at the clock here already. Look at verse 1 again. When Jesus came down from the mountain, we said, of course, that's the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him. Now, Jesus could draw crowds, but he didn't necessarily want to draw crowds. He drew crowds because he healed them. Again, back in chapter 4, more healing, before the Sermon on the Mount, it said he went around and he healed people of every kind of disease. That was verse 23. And then verse 25, it says that's crowds started following When you heal a lot of people, you start getting crowds, which makes sense. People probably had a stingy uh, HMO and decided, uh, let's go see Jesus <laughs> instead or something like that. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you heal people, people are going to go. When Jesus healed people, Matthew says in chapter 9, verse 8, they were awestruck. In chapter 9, verse 33 and 12, 23, he says they were amazed. In chapter fifteen, verse thirty-one, after another miracle of healing, they were, marve- they marveled. So people were always kind of astounded, marveled at Jesus' healing ministry, and that drew crowds. Another thing that drew crowds: chapter fourteen, when he fed the five thousand, that was another crowd. And when when you feed a lot of people like that, you, you draw another crowd, <clears throat> which is why Costco gives away food uh, <laughs> while you're while you're doing that sort of thing. He also drew crowds, as we saw. This is back to the Sermon on the Mount again, because his teaching was so compelling. The the crowds were amazed at his teaching. There's that word again, amazed. So the the crowds are like uh, easy to gather and, I guess, easy to amaze, because that's what happened. Then he came down from the mountain, and large crowds followed him. So that got me thinking, why do large crowds happen? What happens in a large crowd? Well, bear with me on this, because this might seem like a long rabbit trail, but there's a point. You may be surprised that the study of the crowds, or crowd theory, is a thing. Uh, people write books on the study of crowds. Uh, crowd theory, herd mentality, that's not going to sell many books. Uh, mob psychology. This has been a distinct field of study since the French social psychologist Gustave Le Bon wrote the first scholarly study of crowds in 1895. Uh, titled The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. and LeBond came up with three characteristics of crowds, three dynamics of crowds, and they are these. Anonymity, contagion, as his terms, and suggestibility. What that means is crowds are made up of people who remain anonymous even in the crowd. And they remain anonymous so that they can do things they wouldn't normally do if they were doing them on their own individually. Uh, sometimes pathological things. The individuals get caught up in the crowd and kind of, you heard this, go along with the crowd. Sort of like when your kids, or maybe you, uh, at some time in your life, use this one. Does this sound familiar? Everybody's doing it. <laughs> Everybody's going. Right? Remember that one? You used it. Then you used it on your, you know, your kids use it on you. You know, it's like your kids thought, this is a unique argument. <laughs> no. And, and you know what's coming, you know, and what do you respond if everybody and then bridges somehow come into the the, the illustration, okay, that's, that's the sort of thing. If everybody was jumping off a bridge, would you jump? By the way, that argument doesn't work with lemmings, okay? Uh, <laughs> look it up, lemmings, okay? You'll understand. Uh, of course, what that argument is really saying is crowds will do things individuals won't do on their own. Think for yourself and you will do fewer stupid things. Anybody want to give a testimony at this point? (laughs) Social psychologists today will say that this is crowd dynamics. These days, modern scholars of the crowd say that there are are four types of crowds. Some are aggressive. That would be your protesters. Some crowds are celebrative. 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 That's when your team wins. Uh, Like when... When the Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 2016, and they had a big celebration in the city of Chicago, get this—the ninth-largest collection of humanity in world history. Okay, the only things that beat it were the deaths of moguls in India. Okay, Uh, more people came for their funerals than came. I mean, it was just—I know that. If it had been the Dodgers, you'd all been excited. Okay, but nevertheless. Uh, Then there's inquisitive. Some people come because there's an unexpected activity. They want to see some phenomena, some amazing event. And some are acquisitive. That is, they expect to get something. Now, okay, i am bring it back, because this is exactly what happens in the crowds, with the crowds in Matthew's gospel. All four of these kind of crowds show up. They're the people that join the crowd just to be part of the crowd, just to be part of the in-crowd with the Jesus crowd. They're just there because that's what everybody's doing. Sometimes people join the crowd so that they don't miss out on whatever the crowd is looking at, to be amazed by Jesus. You know, you mentioned, you know, hey, did you see, it was Bill, I guess, mentioned Dr. MacArthur's picture in the snow. No, I didn't see that, okay? I felt bad, all right? <laughs> How many else with me, okay? I didn't see it, okay? Let's stop now, okay? I want to go see it. No, that's the point. If you're not a part of it, you feel bad. Sometimes people join to get something. Obviously, if they don't, sometimes people join a crowd even if they don't want what's there. Ever been a part of that kind of crowd? Again, you, you go to a baseball game. We do a Dodger game. They're handing out bobbleheads of Dodger players. I don't care. You know, I'm a Cubs fan. Okay, I don't really care. Okay, I stood in line. I got my bobblehead. You know, <laughs> it's free. I'm not going to give it up. All right, that's that's the way we are. That's why you stand in line to eat one of those little things on a toothpick at Costco, and you have no intention of buying that thing. You don't even like it, but it's free. You're going to get it. That's the way crowds work. Sometimes people join the crowd to attack together. And that crowd shows up at the end of Jesus' life, of course, and they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. All four crowds Jesus had to deal with hey, you know what? None of these reasons last. None of these reasons last. At some point, the protest ends. At some point, the celebration is over. At some point, the thing that was interesting becomes uninteresting. At some point, the thing acquired satisfies or not, the crowd. At some point, the crowd is spent. At some point, the crowd is jaded, it's bored. At some point, the crowd disperses. Being in a crowd is the loosest of all social relationships. It's barely an association, it's not a community, and it's much, much less than a family. And the commitments, if there are any, in joining a crowd are tenuous. The purposes of a crowd are passing, the reasons for the crowd are transient, and the crowds themselves are always fickle. And by the way, the crowd, as a crowd, doesn't care about you as an individual. At all this is why sometimes people get trampled to death in crowds. Listen, one does not become a follower of Jesus by becoming a part of the crowd, or even the crowd that follows Jesus. those who follow Jesus are not his followers to be protesters against something, even if it 's something that they think is politically uh, unacceptable. Those who follow Jesus are not his followers in order to be celebrants. They're not there to be amazed. They don't follow Jesus to get something like health, wealth, and prosperity. Those who follow Jesus truly come to Jesus like this leper, as we're going to see. The crowds are frequently mentioned in Matthew's gospel, as I've already said if you want to get an idea of what the crowds really thought of Jesus, we don't have time, but you can look over in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus uh, asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they came up with the most bizarre things, okay? John the Baptist. <laughs> He's just dead, okay? That would be a... And then they had the, you know, the prophets and other people. Wacky ideas. Wacky, that's a technical theological term. Actually, there's a runny contrast in Matthew with the crowds and the genuine followers of Jesus, and that's what shows up here. The crowds apparently liked his teaching. He liked that he fed them. He liked his his miracles. But get this, the crowds never committed themselves to Jesus. It is not said that anyone in the crowd, after the Sermon on the Mount, actually committed themselves to him. One author says, they liked his teaching, but any conversions on the day were not recorded. This is the day. This is right after that. When the crowds, from the crowds, from the crowds to the healings now, I want to move to look at the instance of the leper here. Okay, so i am not used to about 20 minutes of my time to tell you about crowds. So. And I haven't gotten any points yet. There's no points, okay? So if you've been taking points now, there's no points. But now we're going to have some points. How did the leper come to Jesus? The proposition here is seven ways that the leather, leper came to Jesus. So there's seven. Seven and counting, okay, just me, let you know. There's seven ways. So here's the first way that he came to Jesus. Look at it again. Verse 2, and the leper came to him. He came to him with his personal need. Personal need isn't really, you know, spelled out. I guess it's self-explanatory. He was a leper and he came to Jesus. He, he knew that he was a leper. I mean, that's what he knew. He knew that he was a leper, and he knew that everyone around him knew that he was a leper. It was no good to deny that he was a leper. I mean, he was a leper. There he is. Lepers are pretty obvious. He was ready to acknowledge that he was a leper before Jesus. So he came to his, with his need, and his need was that he was a leper. Let's try it. If you don't get this part, a lot of the rest of it doesn't isn't really impactful, okay? So let's try it again. He was a (laughs) leper. Yes, thank you. I have to do that with my students all the time, seminary students. Notice this the leper did not ask Jesus to change other people's attitudes about lepers. He didn't want special favors for lepers. He wasn't there to advocate for social acceptance for lepers. Because, get this, he didn't want to be enabled in his disease. He wanted to be delivered from his disease. MacArthur writes, Leprosy is a graphic illustration of sin. Like leprosy, sin infects the whole person. It's ugly, loathsome, corrupting, contaminating, alienating, and incurable by man. Lepers in ancient Israel were vivid object lessons of sin. It's altogether fitting that in this series of miracles, the first person Jesus heals is a leper. As sinners come to Jesus, have to admit their need, so this leper comes to Jesus to admit his need, to admit his, acknowledge his problem. By the way, this is only an illustration. I do not want to be accused of allegorizing the text here, okay? I'm not suggesting that, but it is a good illustration. Now, again, a little bit about leprosy. Leprosy uh, was not the same disease, you know, biblically. It's not the same disease we call leprosy today. Or that's Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is a different thing. Uh, Hansen's disease is actually a, a problem with the nerve endings, as much as anything else, and with Hansen's disease, what happens is you just don't feel things. So you hit your thumb with a hammer, but you don't know anything about it because you didn't feel it until your thumb falls off. Uh, and then other neurological things happen. It's just, it's, it's really, it's a, usually the appendages that are stick out the most, uh, fingers, noses, ears, and other things, they have a tendency to fall off, and it's grotesque, and it's, it's really a sad disease. But the leprosy in Scripture, the leprosy that, uh, for instance, uh, Leviticus chapters thirteen and fourteen are talking about, something different. Uh, leprosy here includes uh, it, uh, the term occurs sixty-eight times in the Bible, 50 time, fifty-five times in the Old Testament, thirteen times in the New Testament, and it, it was really a variety of skin infections. Uh, so that uh, it, it would it would be anything from what we've got today we might call it eczema, but but clearly much more serious than anything like that. The biggest difference, listen, between the disease described in the Bible and Hansen's disease is, this is somewhat surprising, the diseases of leprosy described in the Bible were much more contagious than modern-day or Hansen's disease type of leprosy. Very contagious. Very difficult to treat. And they required the segregation of the sufferer They they made people with leprosy stay away. We're going to talk more about that in a second, but that's the point. But this leper defies those conventions. As we're going to see, he defies the law, and he came to Jesus. So that was the first point. He comes acknowledging his need. Second point, he came to him individually. You probably knew this was coming. He didn't come along with the crowd. Uh, He came to Jesus individually. We don't know how he learned about Jesus, obviously, you know, someone had told him something, you know, he wouldn't have been there with the crowd on the day of the Sermon on the Mount because he was a leper, okay, yeah, he wouldn't have been there, so how would he know, can you, can you imagine the conversation that must have happened when he, that somebody t- told him about this, so, he, so the, our leper meets a guy who had been lame, but it's not, he's not lame anymore, here's the conversation, so the leper says, dude, look at you, You're walking. The guy says, yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, (laughs) here I am. That's great. Well, what happened? Well, it was this preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. He's amazing. Just goes around healing people. That's cool. How how does he do that? You're asking me? I don't know. Uh, I, I was just healed. And so the leper thinks, hmm, Wonder. It could have happened that way. You you, you never know. (laughs) Listen, most people meet the saved before they meet the Savior. Let me say that again. Most people meet the saved before they meet the Savior. So how did he know? Well, thirdly, he came boldly. This is, again, a pretty audacious act, As I've said a couple of times, lepers are supposed to keep their distance. They're supposed to uh, announce their presence. Uh, Unclean, unclean. If a leper dared to approach someone without this protocol, he could be expected to be reviled, at least, even stoned. No one was supposed to touch a leper at all. In Israel... Get this, it was even illegal to greet a leper and say hello. Lepers were not allowed to share in the services in the synagogue or the worship services in the temple at all. In, in fact, if they did show up there, they would probably be stoned. They were barred from Jerusalem. In fact, they were barred from every, any walled city. Any leper that shows up has to stay outside a walled city. Now, why would, why would that be a bad? Well, I mean, who's on the inside of the walled city are all the safe people, and who are on the outside of the walled city are all the people that are liable to any kind of bandits or you know marauding armies or whatever. There never was, one author says, there never was a disease which so separated a man from his fellow men as leprosy. A leper would be shunned. Anyone having or suspected of this disease would have to go to the priest for examination. And we don't really have time, maybe I do, but... uh if you go back to the book of Leviticus, I know Leviticus is one of those books when you're reading through the Bible and you get to, oh, what is all this? You know, especially the thirteenth chapter. You get to the Leviticus chapter 13, and it's like doctors are interested in this stuff, but everybody else goes, look, you know, if you go in and if the hair has white around it and if it's flaky, I mean, there's all kinds of clinical stuff. You know, it's like all the fine print or all the words that they use in those drug ads on TV that you're not really paying attention to. Okay. What's going on with all this kind of stuff? This, this is the book, this is Leviticus 13. Very detailed. This is how seriously they took this. You had to go through it very carefully. You had to listen very carefully. And if you were found to be infected, well, there's a whole long process you have to go through to get uninfected or to, to treat the thing, which by the way, many times really didn't accomplish very much because they didn't know what was causing it, and they had no idea of how they were going to fix it. That's why the best thing to do if somebody's got leprosy is just make them stay away from you. This is is it. The leprous person, uh, this is a quote from part of Leviticus 13, and we read it. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. Now, I know you're thinking, well, that's some people I know, but this... this, (laughs) This was on purpose, okay? This is you did this so that everybody would know. They could see from a distance. This this is a person you need to stay away from. Okay? And he shall cover his upper lip with a mask. And cry out, "COVID, COVID." No, <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. You you you, you cried out, unclean, unclean. I know. Okay, I meant to have you laugh there, but the, but but come back with me for a moment. Imagine living like that. Imagine living that way, of having of having to wear distinctive clothing, to have to have a have have to have your hair grow long, so that people would see you in order to avoid you. I mean, it'd be, it's bad enough when people, you know, show you the hand, right? They, they do this. But when you are saying, show me the hand. Stay away from me. Think of what does, that does to an individual. We're, we're social creatures. We're supposed to have fellowship. We're supposed to get together with one another. But the laws of leprosy in the Old Testament made it very clear. These people are Other, these people need to stay away. You need to shun them and they need to remove themselves. That's that's our leper. That's this man. Last part of the quote from Leviticus, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You know, you're reading the Bible and you're looking for personal application. That's one you don't want to get. But he came. He came to Jesus. Think of everything this man has to overcome. All of these laws, all of this societal pressure, all of that. And he recognizes his need is so great, he has to come to Jesus again. I'm not saying this is the meaning of the text, I'm making an illustration, but I think sometimes, if we've been a Christian for a long time, we don't realize how difficult it is for somebody to come to Christ. Think of everything they've got to overcome. The societal pressures can be very strong to accept their status as separate. And other. Number four, if you're keeping count, he came with humility. Look at it. He came, a leper came to him and bowed down before him. Now, what's interesting here is this word for bow down is the word proskuneo, which usually means to worship, to bow down, to prostrate oneself. I like to tell my students that that's what we're supposed to be doing in church all the time. It's not just when the music is going. It's not just, but we're supposed to be worshiping. Worshiping is, worshiping is bowing down. Worshiping is getting down. Now, I know some places, they get down in worship, but that's not the kind of worship we're talking about. We're talking about bending our hearts and minds and wills. It's what we're supposed to be doing at this moment. If, as the Spirit gives utterance, this is the word of God, what are you doing? You're bending your mind. You're bending your heart. You're bending your will to what you see here. That's worship. That's the idea. Even if you don't actually physically get down. But this man physically got down. What's interesting is, is that, just a subtle thing, It's not the main point, whenever somebody came and bowed down before an apostle, what did the apostle say? Get up, get up. An angel. Somebody bows down before they, what the angel say? Get up, get up. This guy comes and bows down before Jesus. And Jesus says, nothing, doesn't respond. Did this leper know that Jesus was God? That's unlikely, but get this. Matthew, when he wrote this, knew that Jesus was God, and he knew that this was the appropriate thing to do. So this reverential attitude on the part of the leper is one of those subtle sort of indications. Matthew's saying he got it, you know, he he got it. Remember who gets it and who doesn't? In any case, number five, he came with reverence and submission. Notice the next thing there, he says, and he said, Lord, bowed before him and said, Lord. Again, none of this is to suggest that this is simply a polite deferential statement, Lord, addressed to someone that he thinks is his superior. Once again, I think what here Matthew's trying to tell us is the leper may or may not have known exactly what all of that meant, but he spoke better than he knew, He's getting it right. He is the Lord. And his attitude, get it, reverence and submission, is what it takes. Listen, I I really bristle when people, you know, in witnessing say to other people, well, you need to try Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't try Jesus. You, You don't sample him. Okay, this is not something you can take a little bit of and see if it works for you or if you like it. Don't forget, this guy was a leper. Okay, It's all or nothing for him. It's all or nothing. You come to Jesus, you got to come with that. It's all or nothing. Some texts tell us Jesus makes that clear. You have to give everything. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. This is not something you can do piecemeal. But this text just gives a, a little bit of a clue to it. We don't need to tell that to the leper because he's already there. This is it. I, I got nothing. This is it. Matthew wants us, again, to understand that this reverence and submission is what it takes to get it with Jesus. This is the right attitude. So uh, number four was humility. Number five was, was reverence and submission. Number six is, look, look what he says. He has confident faith. Look what he says there. If you are willing, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. This is confidence. Again, we're not told how he knew this. By the way, don't, when you're reading through this, don't rush over that. How did he know this? How how could he get this? How could he come to this level of faith? We're not told. I come back to it again and again, folks, because this is the point. It was his need. It was his need more than anything else that basically led him to the understanding that Jesus is the answer to his need. He's the one I need. He didn't need a lot of theological arguments. He just needed to understand who he was you can make me clean. It's confidence. Get this. It's confidence in Jesus' ability, not confidence in his own audacity. It's not, just his, it's not his boldness that leads him to this confident faith. You can make me clean. You can make me clean. He wasn't there to make things happen. He was there to see things Jesus do to make things happen. Put it this way, he wasn't thinking his faith would heal him. He's thinking Jesus would heal him. It's the same with us, folks. Be careful. Faith doesn't save us. Faith in Jesus saves us. Or even better, Jesus saves us. And we accept that by faith. That faith is the means, right? Faith is never the cause. Faith is never the, the thing that... The catalyst that makes it all work. Some people think that way. You ever heard this? Basically, God, 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 G-A-W-D, God. God has done everything that he can do. God has voted for you. The devil has voted against you. You must cast the deciding. You ever heard something like that? Totally wrong. That's not, that's not it. You bring nothing. You've heard this except the sin that requires you to be saved. He the leper brought nothing except his leprosy. Say it again, it's not your faith that saves you, it's Jesus that saves you. And you you access that by faith. Faith is the empty hand reaching, the empty hand reaching to receive what Christ is giving. Number 7. I'm running out of time. He came to him with intense hope. If you are willing, doesn't mean that he thought Jesus might not be willing. Well, maybe you're not willing. Whatever, we'll, we'll give it a shot. <clears throat> it may even be something like this. May you be willing. You can make me clean. May you be willing. Again, did you forget that he's a leper? He's got nothing. He's got nothing. When I was putting in my application here, to be a member of this church, uh, the, the dear gentleman when I you didn't know me from anything, you know. Who, who's this guy? Um, and uh, so he, he had me fill out the form. He says, before you go, I want to ask you a question. Uh, and this was, you know, I could tell. He's trying to figure out where I am. He says, if you were to die tonight and stand before Jesus, you know, whatever. You've heard that, right? Okay, what would you say? And I said, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's like... Is that a good answer or not? So he, 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 he was trying to figure that out or not. So he asked me again, what, what would you say? Why should I let you in and have nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ? So he asked me again, and I said, the blood of Jesus Christ, okay? And I just kept saying that. So he wasn't getting any way with me, so he turned to my wife. She said, what about you? She said, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. She said, a good student of mine over there. I mean, you know, this is exactly right. Why? Because I got nothing. My, my friends, brothers and sisters you got nothing. You still have nothing. None of us have anything. Okay. You want to keep the right attitude coming to Jesus? That's what you have to keep in mind. you got nothing. You have nothing. You can do nothing. Your only hope is, is Jesus Christ willing? Is he willing? He is willing. Before we get to the answer, Notice this, the leper never really asks Jesus to be healed. He never comes right out and says, heal me. He says, if you are willing, he never said, okay, heal me. No, he doesn't say anything like that. Obviously, he wanted to be healed, but he didn't explicitly ask for it. He simply acknowledges Jesus' ability to heal him, hinting, of course, that he thinks Jesus could do that. MacArthur says, how far, how how much different is that humble spirit than the kind of demands you see in the charlatans of the healers that are going on today, demanding miracles and demanding healings? Well, Jesus' response in verses 3 and 4, so I give you seven, Jesus' response are in four parts. You doing the math here? So now I got four parts, all right? The first part, he showed the leper compassion. Look at this in verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. This is actually pretty emphatic in the original. You read it this way Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Think about this. One more time. This man is a leper. This man has probably, this, this man has probably never felt a human touch for years he has not known the feeling of a human hand on his flesh for the longest time notice Jesus didn't need to do the very subsequent miracle he heals the the centurion servant from a distance you know that Jesus could do this right he didn't need to do this. And that's the first thing he says. He stretched out his hand and touched him. You get the emphasis on that? He put his hand out and he was healed. That would have been enough. He, he, he touched him he as healed. But it's there. He, he, Jesus reaches out to him and touches him. Can you imagine what that simple act of compassion would have meant to that man after all those years? Just that alone. Furthermore, the Jews were forbidden to touch a leper lest they would incur the same defilement that the man had, which meant that when Jesus did that, he was accepting the man's stigma on himself. Only in Jesus' case, he doesn't become defiled, he cleanses. Second, four parts, second part, he spoke to the man with assurance. Again, he needed, didn't need to do this either. I love this. Don't miss this detail. He asked, Lord, if you are willing. Jesus said, I am willing. Did you get that? I mean, it's exactly his own words. You know, I mean, Jesus could have just said, watch this. You know, he could have just, you know, done it. Be, be thou as, you know, you desire. I mean, the point is, is that he said, I am willing. That in and of itself is, is, is a condescension, is it not? Third, I've got to move on. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. I love that, too. You know, these guys, you've got to go through all of the stuff, put the oil on, you know, pray the prayer, wait. For, no, it's just Jesus' miracles were that way. Because, again, that's a miracle, Right? <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, what? Did that really happen? No, there's no question. And then the fourth response that Jesus has to the, now in my outline, it's former leper. In verse 4, Jesus said to him, See to it that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What's going on there? Okay, this is number four, but there are three parts. Can you do the math? Okay. Okay. Uh, we were at 11, but uh, it's actually it's only, it's, you add, you know, the fourth is the three, so you have to, anyway, forget it. <laughs> see that you tell no one. In fact, he says, see to it that you tell no one. What was that instruction about? That was an instruction to don't go get a crowd. Don't go gather a crowd. That would have been easy, gather a crowd. Hey, hey, you know, Jesus said, don't do that. The impulse to go to the crowd, to let everyone see is these amazing things, is what Jesus is trying to prevent from happening. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says, he, although this is Warren Worsby, he says, he did not want people to trust him simply on the basis of a spectacular deed. Right? That hap- that's, again, that's back to the crowds. Go show yourself, that's the second thing, he says, go show yourself, Okay, if he went into the crowd, he goes to show himself, what? He's supposed to show himself to the priest, the former leper, so that he could be let back into society. This was, this was, this was, this was the law. That's the, that's the third thing. Present the offering. Jesus is telling him, man, be obedient to the law. Go back to the law. Find out what you're supposed to do. He, and, and the reason why that's important is because the whole point of the law was to redirect the, the response to a miracle, not to the miracle itself, but to the one who gave the miracle. Present the offering. Present the offering so that you're, you're thinking about God who gave you the miracle instead of just reveling in this miracle. You're, you're cleansing. That was the whole point from the text in Leviticus 14. I just preached all of Leviticus 14 right there, in case you didn't notice it. This was the point. Make sure that all of this goes to God. This is why the healing is given. Matthew just finishes there, but the parallel account in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, says that the leper didn't do what Jesus told him to do, but he went out, this is quoting, and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed in unpopulated areas because he had to get away from the crowds. Those who come to Jesus come like this leper. You don't come with the crowd. You come like this. And everyone who comes to Jesus finds compassion and cleansing and salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the instruction that you give us from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I rejoice over the healing of this man and believe fervently that he not only received the cleansing from leprosy, but the cleansing from sin. And I can't wait to talk to him and the Roman centurion and the Syrophoenician woman in heaven. Lord, help us to remember that even though we know the answer to the question, who is Jesus? We must keep reminding ourselves that even today, even now, we come to Jesus exactly as this leper did, expecting and knowing that he is willing. Lord, I just pray that you would finish this message in our hearts and minds according to your word by the Spirit of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.